Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Didn't know what to do as a 20-year-old. I would never dream or... You could never imagine being put in this situation by somebody that's supposed to be there to help you and to make you a better hockey player. That is the the voice of Kyle Beach, of course. A story that has really captivated um, North America and beyond North America, the sexual assault on Kyle Beach when he was playing for the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. It's a deeply disturbing issue because the issue of sexual assault, and particularly on younger people, is one that we talk about, hear about on a regular basis. And it fills the airwaves and it grabs national and public attention, international attention, and then it drifts away, which gives the predators another opportunity to, 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 uh, to commit their acts. We cannot live this way. We have to protect those who are assaulted and violated by sexual predators. So Kyle Beach's allegations were, of course, that while he was with the Chicago Blackhawks, um, the uh, video coach uh, sexually assaulted him. And uh, what I found particularly disturbing and troubling beyond the, the nucleus of the story is that I was reading that after the, after the incident, of course, we know that the uh, executives, the executive group in, within the Blackhawks uh, did not want to pursue this, did not want to go to uh, authorities and pursue it. But I also was reading, and as I'm sure you may have heard and read as well, that players on the Blackhawks at the time during practices would um, insult and degrade uh, Kyle Beach. And I, I was wondering, how did that not get out over 10 years? You, you can almost see a management team and a management structure keeping things, keeping the lid on and maybe uh, persuading, let me use that word, persuading others to not say anything publicly. But how does it not get out when players are behaving in that manner? Theo Fleury is a former NHL player, Calgary Flames, also a survivor of sexual abuse, as you know. He's a public speaker, a blogger, author, his book, uh, Playing with Fire. And you'll find uh, Theo at theoflurry.life. Theo, this is the first time we have an opportunity to talk on the air, you and I. I just want you to know I have tremendous respect for who you are and what you're doing and the difference you're making. Thank you for coming on the program. Well, uh, the feeling, the feeling's mutual, Roy. Uh, I've been following you for a long time as well, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity. Now, let's talk about this. Were you genuinely surprised at Kyle Beach's revelations, or are there more such situations, experiences, and stories just under the surface in the NHL and across pro sports and amateur sports just waiting to be told? Well, I'm never surprised anymore when there's an incident that happens. Um, you know, and, and I always 
think about, like, when are we going to get the lessons? Because we've had numerous examples, you know, from the Catholic Church that has to speak about this almost on a daily basis. Uh, Penn State, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, USA Gymnastics, you know, so, you know, we're not getting the lesson here. And, uh, you know, hockey is the flavor of the week this week, and uh, but this is a societal issue, Roy. And in the underbelly of society is uh, pedophilia is, I would say, one of the biggest epidemics on the planet. Yeah. When you look at, and it is, and I agree with you, and I've done many programs on the issue of pedophilia and victims of sexual assault, kids who are victims, and it, it, it affects them throughout life. And, and Theo, we know from your story what happened to you. Uh, affected you for many years, and I'm sure it still affects you, particularly when you hear uh, a story such as this about Kyle Beach. But there was that de- determined effort to keep the assault on Kyle Beach from being reported to police by senior members of the Blackhawks organization. Did that surprise you at all? No, that's the first reaction every single time is first deny, right, which they did, or they, or they didn't even talk about it. But eventually, you know, the truth always comes out. And, uh, you know, I, I, my first uh, AA sponsor, one of the first things he said to me, he says, more will be revealed. And this is what we're seeing, you know, three, four days after we're getting that, you know, the NHLPA was involved. They covered it up, you know. So, it, uh so yeah, so nothing surprises me anymore, and this situation could have been completely avoided. What would they? What What did they need to do? Well, as soon as they heard the allegation, they should have suspended the video coach pending an investigation. You're suspended until we we get to the bottom of this. And, uh, you know, he's a video coach, so they could have, they could have kept it under wraps within the organization. They could have dealt with it without being public because the video guy sits in a room with 300 TVs. Like, that's his job. So, um, so I think if they would have dealt with it the right way. And, you know, the, the guy that's getting away with all this is John McDonough, who's the president of the organization. You know, nobody's talking about him. Because everybody went to him, and he didn't do anything about it. When we talk about things being done, when you look at what's happened between the initial revelations from Kyle Beach and uh, to today, has enough been done by the NHL so far? You know, Joel Quenwell is gone as coach of the Florida Panthers. We know that, of course. Has enough been done by the by the National Hockey League, or do you get the feeling, and by the NHLPA, or do you get a sense that they're just trying to cover their tracks? Yeah, they're in full damage control. They're in full panic mode, and when people are in damage control and panic mode, 
it is, you know, a proverbial dumpster show, right? And, uh, but like I said, Roy, this, the NHL, the NHLPA is the flavor of the week, okay? And I cannot stress this enough, that this is a societal issue. It affects every sect, denomination, the whole entire gamut of people who coach kids, teach kids, you name it. These sexual predators infiltrate themselves into children's organizations. Yeah. then Then the grooming process starts where the predator gains trust and a position of power. Once he has that, then he goes after the kids and he starts to groom the kids. And so the last sort of thing in the whole process is kids get sexually assaulted. Uh, employees get sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, you know? So it's a long drawn out process and we haven't put enough protocols in place to put block blockades in between so that these guys don't get access to doing what they do. Theo, when people know your story, we know what happened to you. It took a long time for you to be able to share with the world what happened to you. And, and, and we, I think we've all observed what that took out of your life uh, from the perspective that we had. When you hear stories like this, when you hear Kyle Beach's revelations, and you look at what happened over this period of time when he was alone for 10 years, had to deal with the reality of what happened to him. How does that affect you personally? It's a question I always get asked when something like this happens. And, uh, you know, and I always say, you know what, I, I've done my work, right? Like I've done my work and, you know, I still go to therapy. But more importantly, um, the the way that I've healed is by, helping other people who've had the same experience as me, I help them heal. And it reminds me uh, how far I've come. Uh, it puts me, you know, in places uh, during their, you know, their process of healing and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I, I truly found the gift in, in what happened to me and the reason why it did happen to me, because, you know, Look at where it's put me in the world. It's put me right into, you know, uh, you know, the biggest epidemic on the planet, which is trauma, mental health, and addiction. And yeah. all three of these things live in the same house. And so I have, a, I've, I've, over the last 14, 15 years, you know, I've got a pretty solid, you know, uh, on the ground, uh, not in the university, education about psychology and neuroscience and and uh, holistic uh, treatment, spirituality, you know, emotional health, physical health. So, you know, I, I feel very blessed and, and fortunate, I guess, um, that I've been able to come out on the other side. But, but truly, Roy, it has been a gift in my life. Having those experiences have turned out to be truly a gift in my life because the amount of people that I've help the amount of people that uh you know i've prevented from uh, taking their own lives and you know all of this stuff and so I've, I've really truly found a gift in in the pain that that i went through uh you know as a young boy 
Yeah, you are the person people look to for advice, information, and uh, sustenance, really, emotional sustenance. Um, and I was very reluctant to ask you that question. I know you get it asked it all the time. I didn't want to ask, but within the context of our conversation, I needed to. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, res- I respect that. Theo, how did the story remain out of the media for so many years? And I'm going back to the reports of, of uh, Kyle Beach's teammates in Chicago harassing and degrading him during practices and with coaches present. How does this stay under wraps for so long? Is it is it systemic within within? And we come back to the pro sports arena. Is it systemic within the pro, pro sports arena because the kids of these young men have come up as kids, and probably many of them have seen, heard, or in some way experienced some level of abuse along the way. Yeah, well, that's the million dollar question, Roy. You know, why, why you know why isn't this stuff exposed? You know, once a reporter hears it, well, because, you know, the, the the leader of the organization is probably going to these press people and saying, you know what, like, you know, we can't have this stuff come out and, you know, we'll, we'll give you this or we'll give you that or whatever, right? So, you know, and, you know, let's face it, in the Western Hockey League, you know, nobody talks about what happened in Portland and everybody's very aware of what happened in Portland and then... You know, there's been numerous occasions throughout, you know, the CHL where this stuff has been rampant and, and has gone on for, for long periods of time. And the only reason why I know this is because other survivors who were involved in those situations have reached out to me and asked me for help in dealing with, you know, what they went through, you know, during junior hockey. And I think... You know, that the CHL has got off scot-free through this whole entire mess. And now, and now, you know, it's trickling, it's trickling into the big leagues, which I thought it would never happen because, you know, uh, because I would think that, uh, what happened, you know, in, in Sheldon and Mai's case, you know, that, that there would be strict protocol and, uh, you know, uh, measures in place that would, you know, eventually keep these guys out of the game of hockey. Because as you can see, you know, uh, in hindsight, you know, I don't know if the NHL recovers from this. I honestly don't know if they recover from this or not. Because, you know, when, when like, everybody who knew, like, or even caught wind of it, you're all guilty. You might as well have abused uh Mr. Beach yourself, because that's what, that's what this causes, right? That's what this causes. And, and, uh, you know, we need a complete overhaul of protocols, uh, you know, but, you know, in Canada, uh, we don't have a justice system either, right? We have a legal system and, you know, it's neither justice nor a system. Yeah. And when you have a legal system, you know, the judges get rich, the lawyers get rich, and, you know, we have, you know, the average sentence for a pedophile in Canadian society is, I think, average about six years, and they serve 18 months, and then we know that 98% of pedophiles reoffend when they get out of prison. And uh, Roy, I work in the prison system in Canada with inmates uh, talking about their traumatic experiences, and I also work with pedophiles as well in the prison. And 
What they tell me is they say, please do not let me out of this jail. Because even though they know that they are doing what they're doing is wrong, the urge is greater than their own common sense. So the pedophiles in prison are telling me, a sexual abuse survivor who's trying to help them, don't let me out of here. I've heard those stories, too, over the years. And when we look at our justice system, and you're right, it's neither justice nor a system, um, the laws are clearly not sufficiently uh, a deterrent, and the punishment is lenient. I remember covering a case of a children's hockey coach in Hamilton, kids hockey coach, who was criminally convicted of sexually abusing his players. And he just, um, he, as you said, he groomed them. And I, 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 I can't remember how much punishment he got or how much time he got. And Theo, I only have a few seconds left here, but I do remember doing a program at Workworth Prison with the inmates uh, committee. And at that time, Workworth was about 75% um, sexual offenders. And they walked around that place as though they owned it. And that's what I took away from that broadcast. These guys walked around that place like they owned it. Theo, will you come back on the show? Anytime you want, Roy, and uh, I really appreciate it. I think, you know, we, we definitely elevated the conversation today, and that's, you know, always a goal of mine whenever I'm interviewed about something like this. So the federal government made a last hour's announcement that it'll appeal the federal court decision supporting two human rights tribunal rulings that Ottawa discriminated against First Nations children by removing them from their homes and uh, knowingly engaged in underfunding of child and family services for Indigenous populations living on reserves. Uh, Global News reporting that the federal government has filed what officials are calling a protective appeal of a court ruling. Protective appeal. The statement released yesterday evening says the government uh, is claiming all parties involved have agreed to pause litigation of the case and that officials will sit down uh, with the goal of reaching a compensation deal by December 2021. I don't like the use of the word deal. We're joined by Chief Cadmus DeLorm of Cowess' First Nation in Saskatchewan. And you know that unmarked graves were found near the site of a former residential school on the Cowess' First Nation. Uh, Chief DeLorm, good to have you back on the program. Thank you for taking the time. What do you make of the, the federal government appealing the federal court ruling? Good afternoon, Roy. It's, uh, you know, it's mixed feelings. We are trying to move forward and trying to heal, trying to get stronger. And uh, these cases are going to come. Uh, this isn't the only one. There will be others because of the inequality, the, the, um, the lack of a strong relationship in the past. We all inherited. And when appeals happen, it, it really hinders the healing that many Indigenous people, in this case children, maybe young adults that are trying to um, get stronger from their experience in, in the child welfare system. And so uh, without knowing the details, Roy, uh, you know, we just uh, have to hope that the government has the best interest in the healing journey many are experiencing. The federal court supported the Human Rights Tribunal's decisions. Um, it just completely supported them. We have Indigenous leaders who have spoken of actions speaking louder than words, and uh, they were very critical of Mr. Trudeau during his Kamloops apology visit. I'm just wondering, Chief DeLorme, is there a cooperative climate between First Nations chiefs and the government? Because when I hear appeal of the federal court decision, 
I, I just become uncomfortable. Roy, I speak as one First Nation in this country, and there are 615. And our relationship with the government of Canada is, is very, there's a lot of discussion. And, you know, one thing about this government is if I wanted to talk to a minister or the chief, I, I could text, I could call. If I wanted to talk to the prime minister, you know, of course, a busy person, but we, we probably could talk. We talked a few times in my tenure as a chief so far. And so the conversations are there. Where the challenge continues is the biopsy, is, is the um, policies that we never created as Indigenous people, that we were never given input. And so, you know, discussions are happening, Roy, at the political level. But to try and get to tangible results that's where a lot of the challenges happen, and that's where many ancient leadership get frustrated is you know, we could have candid conversations and we could try come up with action plans, but you know the the machine of of the government is is also something that we must understand. There's a lot of patience and frustration there, yeah, and the fact that they waited until essentially the last minute to publicly announce their intent as far as appealing the federal court decision is concerned is not exactly comforting. And uh, and they have now have a deadline, they've said, until the end of December, and they say all parties have agreed. Is it your sense that all parties have agreed to this, Chief? You know, one of the um, you know greatest warriors in this country, and I mean warriors as someone who wants to bring peace but wants to hold justice, is the Blackstock. And, you know, many... Many, many nations, including ours, you know, thanks, Cindy, for being that strong advocate voice. You know, chiefs like myself and others, you know, we want justice. We want what was rightfully uh, supposed to be invested in our children. And so, you know, there, there is many moving parts to this. Uh, as of this hour, I haven't got a full briefing as to what that looks like when all parties are talking. Uh, you know, we are... Uh, we're a rights holder in this country and a shareholder in this court case. So, you know, once I know more, I, I will be laying my opinion as well. Yeah. So they shouldn't have said all parties are in agreement because you didn't know about it. Um, Chief, we have 30 seconds left. I wish we had more. But uh, what are your thoughts uh, and expectations of a papal visit to this country? You know, it's uh, it's hope. You know, the uh, apologies come with acceptance. Acceptance on the role Roman Catholic Church played in residential schools. The apology, I hope, comes with it on this land. And from that apology, we can then reset our compass to invest, invest in the intergenerational trauma. And hopefully one day, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and Indigenous people can have a stronger relationship because right now there is a lot of questions because of the role that was played in residential schools. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. But so here we are on the uh, on the summit of the the opening of uh, COP26 summit. 
National and international polling has repeatedly shown that people are generally supportive of action on climate change. Certainly that, uh, that number has increased over the last number of years, if I recall correctly, about 10 years ago in international polling showed interest in climate change as far as issues of concern uh, were concerned uh, pretty close to the bottom, not so any longer, except, here's the except, when the initiatives announced by governments or taken by governments start to hit people in the bank account or the wallet. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, do great polling for Global News, and uh, Daryl joins us on the Roy Green Show. Great to have you back, Daryl. What's the uh, what's the view of climate change just generically in Canada? Well, people believe a couple of things. One of them, they believe that it's an important existential threat to the world and to Canada. Uh, the second thing is they believe that uh, overwhelmingly that uh, humankind is is uh, a strong contributing factor to climate change. After that, <laughs> the agreement kind of breaks down. Because when you move past the uh, the idea that it's important and something should be done, and you actually move to the uh, topic of what should specifically be done, that's where all the controversy is. And it is interesting that you see, you know, most of the uh, attention at things like, uh, you know, for example, COP26 coming up, or, you know, when Greta Thunberg is out there saying what she says, it's about raising awareness. Well, there's no more awareness raising that needs to go on. The real challenge is, is, is coming to grips with what the changes are that we're going to be requiring people to make to their lives in order to deal with this. That's where the controversy is. That's where the difficulty is. And that's where the uh, cliched rubber hits the road. So if, if I can just step back for a few moments before we address that issue, if we go back 10 years, 12 years, and we look at international polling that was done or national polling that was done, uh, where would climate change have appeared in a list of areas and issues of concern? Well, well down the list. I mean, if it, even if it showed up, it would be in single digits. Okay. And today it's? Tied for second, uh, along with COVID. Number one in the country right now is healthcare. But by the way, that's the first time we've seen COVID not be the top ish- issue in months. Okay. Is there regional disparity in uh, in assessing climate change as far as importance is concerned? Yeah, it tends to be more important in Quebec, Ontario, and British Columbia than it is in, in the other provinces. But the biggest difference tends to be in terms of generation. So it's younger people who are more concerned about climate change than older people. Mm-hmm. So if, if we if we talk about, we'll go back to the issue of uh, what governments may do, what initiatives may be undertaken, and how people respond to that. I spoke last uh, weekend with John Stackhouse, Vice President of RBC, about their $2 trillion, uh, the, the report, the $2 trillion transition to, uh, to net zero. And I, I, I thought I really enjoyed the interview with John. It's at RoyGreenShow.com. But one of the points, one of the issues, one of the questions that I found, or at least one of the sentences I found in the report, Daryl, said, Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I'm just, first of all, I don't know quite sure, I'm not quite sure what that means. I asked John, we talked about it a bit, but I'm still not quite sure what that means. And so the question I'm asking you is, if it becomes uncomfortable, so it becomes more expensive, and maybe energy isn't as plentifully available. I remember when Barack Obama was first um, elected 
president of the United States. There was talk about air conditioning not being readily available. That got an immediate pushback. So how willing do you think Canadians would be to accept increased cost, um, not as much energy supply, and certainly more expensive energy? Where do they, where, where's the line? Well, at the moment, they're learning to absorb the carbon tax. So that's the, you know, the first big cost that's been imposed on their lives. So we'll see how they do with that. And one of the other issues uh, um, that's, that's really rising in terms of uh, uh, importance to Canadians is affordability. So, to, you know, to the extent that affordability becomes a bigger issue and taxes, uh, increasing taxes are a part of that, we might start to see some pushback. But the, the public really isn't contemplating any of this right now. Basically, the way that they see climate change is as something that probably industry needs to deal with and other people need to deal with, not them specifically. Uh, they feel that, say, for example, if they're doing the recycling, that they're making a contribution to climate change. I mean, they may very well be, but but the types of you know uncomfortable, uh, comfortable with uncomfort and discomfort, I think the more likely reaction is going to get uncomfortable with their political leaders uh, rather than personal discomfort. So uncomfortable with the political leaders and uncomfortable with the initiatives? That cost yeah, more? Uh, because, yeah, because people aren't at the moment prepared to absorb any of this. Uh, the, uh, uh, the climate change seems like a very distant thing for most people. It seems to be something that's out there. It seems to be something that's not within their personal control. Mm-hmm. So that's the first hurdle that we have to get over. And, you know, uh, I think industry and government is way ahead of the public on this except for the, the parts of the population that are more activist. So, so I was uh, talking about inflation last weekend, and I was trying to think of a common denominator definition of inflation, because we're at uh, 20 year, we're at a number that, that we haven't been at for 20 years. And, and to me, it was, uh, you're on the way to the grocery store, but you stop for gas first, and you don't fill up at either place because you can't afford it. So if we get to that point, and, and there's something we're going to be talking about tomorrow, an incident that I saw at a grocery store, um, someone trying to buy food, and it was very, very uh, disconcerting. If we get to the point, and I think we're there now for, for probably significant numbers of people, you don't fill up your vehicle anymore because it's over $100. You go to the grocery store, and you look at things that you normally would have picked up, uh, and you put them back, and you look for an alternative that's cheaper. There, there is a line there, and I think I hear you saying that. There's a line there when people will say, enough. Yeah, there is. And, and, and depending on what, how they decide to deal with this, they might not see it as a reflection of climate change. Uh, but if governments come back to them and say, you know what, I can't believe they use that line, actually. It's getting uncomfortable, like being comfortable with being uncomfortable sounds rather cavalier, but... Um, you know, it was it was hidden are, away. It was hidden away yeah. in the body of the report. But I found it. They need they need an editor because uh, <laughs> it sounds, as I said before, cavalier. Um, but um, the uh, the degree to which people are getting uncomfortable, they're not going to be looking in the mirror and saying and pointing the finger at their own faces and saying they're responsible for this. Mm-hmm. The more likely outcome is that they're going to start turning to their political leaders, their corporate leaders, and other people in their communities and saying, "Why is this happening to me?" Because I didn't sign up for this. So do we get then to a point, potentially, where that list of significantly important issues, where climate change is tied with COVID, where climate change starts to drop down the list? Is that well, likely, possible? Two, could go one of two ways, right? 
One of them is that um, uh, it, it could go down. And by the way, the important tends to, uh, or the urgent tends to push out the important. So if affordability starts to rise up the list and becomes a really strong priority for Canadians, you will see climate change just drop down anyway. But the other thing that could be going on is we could be misinterpreting what people are telling us about climate change. If they do really link it strongly with affordability, we may see it stay high, but not because people are particularly uh, saying that uh, they want to do something about it or that the uh, initiatives that are being uh, um, uh, brought forward by the government are things that they think they should be doing on climate change. It could actually be quite the opposite. Green could be uh, could, could transform into something where it's seen as a, a, a negative in the sense that it, it costs you a lot of money or is hurting you at the grocery store or putting you through the circumstances that you, uh, that you uh, were just describing. So there's an interpretive element here too. Climate change could stay up there, but for reasons that are different from people saying, I want something done about this. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.